Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, our text this morning begins in verse 13 and extends to the end of the chapter, to verse 25. As you're turning, I just hope you were reflecting about what we've already seen in, in John's Gospel. I, I tried to suggest to you at the very beginning that every place we turn in this Gospel... John is trying to pursue a particular purpose and point. Uh, Every place is trying to point us to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He said in John chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. And so we've seen how John has already told us that Jesus is the Word of God. The Word became flesh. That he is, in fact, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's this ladder that connects heaven and earth. He's the Son of Man who is the Son of God. He's Savior and Lord. Last time we saw that he is the one who brings about a new creation week, a new wedding that offers the new wine of the kingdom. Over and again, John has been trying to point us to Jesus. Again, he's going to do that in this passage as we see how it is that Jesus offers the sign of the new temple, how he is the place of God's presence, because God's presence is found not ultimately in a place, of course. It's found in a person. His name is Jesus. That's what we're going to see this morning. But in order to see these truths and have, more importantly, have them penetrate our hearts, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask him to help us. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do ask for your help, that you would send your Holy Spirit. In spirit, we pray that you would take your word and use it in our hearts and lives. Open our eyes of faith, we ask that we might see glorious riches in this part of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so John chapter 2, and beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is trying to remember everyone's name. Uh, I have a lot of faces, and I have a lot of names, 
And for most folks, those faces and names go together. But sometimes it's a bit of a struggle. I'll sit there with my mental Rolodex as I see a face and I'm going, 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 going. And I remember the name five seconds after that person leaves me. It's part of the challenge of being a pastor. Sometimes, though, I don't always connect face to name or even worse. I have a case of mistaken identity and I get the wrong name with the face. That happened to me early in my last pastorate. There was... Uh, there were these two women who, at the time at least, of my first months of being in Heisberg, I, I thought they looked somewhat similar. Of course, as longer I was there, I realized they didn't look similar at all. Um, but it was Becky and Sandra. And Becky was married to George, and Sandra was married to TJ. It was, was December, and many folks brought different things by the house uh, to celebrate Christmas, and TJ showed up one night with steaks. In fact, it was because TJ brought steaks to us that first Christmas that has become part of our Christmas tradition that on Christmas Eve, we as a family eat steaks. Well, TJ showed up with the steaks. I was trying to place him with his wife, and I got the wrong woman, and I called him George. Um, It was funny seven years later when TJ would come up to me and say, hey, I'm George. And yes, we would have a good laugh. Boy, it was embarrassing in the moment, particularly because he had brought these great steaks and I wanted to thank him. Uh, Sometimes we see a face and we get the wrong name and we have a case of mistaken identity. I think something similar is going on here. Maybe it's not obvious to you how that's the case, but these Jews, they see what Jesus is doing And they think they know who he is, but they don't get it right, do they? There's an element of mistaken identity. They see the signs, they think they know, but they're completely mistaken about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. I wonder if times we're not like that. Uh, we, we, We see the signs, we see the good gifts that God gives us, we see the blessings, but we misread them. We think that perhaps these good things come to us because we're so good. Or, or we, we, put our, we profess to, to believe in Jesus because of the good things that, that have happened to us in our lives. But when the difficulties come, when adversity strikes, then we begin to wonder, did we really understand? Did we really know? We believe in his name because of the signs, just as it is at the end of this chapter. But when the hard things come, we begin to think, well, maybe it was a case of mistaken identity. I think that's a question that's being raised here, even in the sign of the new temple. Of course, what Jesus is doing ultimately is connected to this cleansing, this cleansing of the temple that takes place in verses 13 to 17. Now, there's all sorts of questions that come because of the cleansing of the temple here as it shows up in John's gospel. When you compare what's described here in John chapter 2 with what's recorded in the so-called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we call them the synoptic gospels because they tend to see things the same way, hence synoptic. When we compare these, these different cleansings of the temple, there's all sorts of questions that are raised. I mean, in this cleansing, it apparently happens at the beginning of, jo- of Jesus' ministry, or at least it's put at the front of John's gospel here in John chapter 2. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, in the synoptic gospels, the cleansing of the temple happens at the end of Jesus' ministry, at the beginning of Holy Week. Here in John chapter 2, in this cleansing, Jesus demands that the sellers not make his father's house a house of trade. 
But in the Gospels, you might remember, in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the Synoptic Gospels, he castigates them for making the house of prayer into a den of robbers. Here in John chapter 2, the passage that the disciples remember and connect to this cleansing is Psalm 69, verse 9. But in the other Gospels, the, the passages that are connected to that cleansing, Jesus quotes. They come from Jeremiah 7, 11, and Isaiah 56, 7. And so these differences between what happens here in John chapter 2 and what happens in the Synoptic Gospels lead some scholars to suggest there wasn't one cleansing of the temple, but two cleansings of the temple. One that happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and another that happens at the end. And perhaps that's right. I tend to think, though, there was really only one cleansing. John remembers different details, and for his own purposes, in his gospel, he takes what happened at the end of Jesus' ministry and he puts it at the beginning in order to give an advanced sign of what's going to happen at the end, the the sign of the, the raising of the new temple, the raising of Jesus Christ. But whether there's two, whether there's one, whether it happens at the beginning or whether it happens at the end, What's really important about this passage are Jesus' actions here. Now, John starts this by telling us it's Passover, right? You have your Bibles open. See it? John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And immediately we think, what happened at Passover? Oh, right. The sacrificing of lambs to take away sin. What have we already heard twice in John's gospel? Twice from John the Baptist. Behold, look, see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, look, see, the Lamb of God. And then in short order, two scenes later, where are we? We're at Passover, where lambs are being offered that cannot take away sin. Now, only Jesus, the true Lamb of God, can. He's the true Passover of God. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem during the Passover season. He enters into the temple area, and what does he find? He finds those selling animals for the sacrifices, and he finds those who are money changers, those who are taking the Roman denarius and who are transforming them into the Jewish drachma because dirty money, and that's how the Jews viewed the Roman money, dirty money can't be used to purchase sacrifices for God. Now, in many ways, these sellers and these money exchangers, they were providing a service, weren't they? I mean, think about it. If you're a pilgrim coming from all over Palestine, indeed, all over the world, it's so much easier simply to purchase your sacrifices in Jerusalem at the temple in the court of the Gentiles than it would have been to bring your own sheep, or even worse, to bring your own bull. Much easier to buy it there. And if you're coming from other parts of the Roman Empire, how are you going to get the drachmas? Well, you go see the local money changer and look, he's right there in in the court of the Gentiles, right there in, in the Jewish temple. They're providing a service, but Jesus sees deeper into their hearts. Because as we were told at the end of this passage, he knows what is in man. He knows what's in the human heart. He knows that these folks are not here to serve others, but to serve themselves. They're not here as worshipers in the temple, but they're there to make a quick buck, aren't they? And so what does Jesus do? He takes these cords. Where did he get the cords? Ever wonder that? It's likely these cords were actually used to bind the animals prior to sale. 
And so they've already been selling them. There's cords that have been cut off as they take the animal in to be sacrificed. So Jesus takes some of these excess cords. He binds them together in a whip. And he begins to use the whip on the animals. He even uses it on the the merchants, the money changers. He drives them out of the temple. Those are his actions. But he matches his actions with interpretations. And the first thing you hear is Jesus' interpretation. You see it in verse 16. He told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, what does that mean? Why does Jesus say that? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Well, perhaps, as I think likely, this is a reference back to the Old Testament. And particularly to Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21. If you were to look at that passage, which occurs right at the end of the book, speaking of the day of the Lord, the, the day of salvation and judgment that would come to God's people, Zechariah prophesied that on the day of the Lord there shall no longer be a traitor, a T-R-A-D-E-R, traitor, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And so Jesus, I think, by using this language, you are making my father's house into a house of trade, and he's driving them out. Jesus is telling them, today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation and judgment. Because Jesus is there, he is driving these traitors out of the house of the Lord. Driving them out because now is the appointed time. But Jesus says something more. Did you see it? What does he say? You have made, do not make my father's house a house of trade. My father's house. As readers of John's gospel, we already know who Jesus is. That he's the one and only of the Father. Full of of grace and truth. That that he is the only God who's at the Father's side. Who's who's in the very bosom of the Father. We as readers already know that, that, that God the Father is the Father of Jesus. As the Son of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, has, has God as his Father. But this is the first time from Jesus' own mouth that he claims God as his own Father. He claims this direct relationship and this house is his Father's house. And so I think Jesus' interpretation here of what he is doing is that he is God's Son. And he has come on this, the day of the Lord, the day of salvation and judgment to God's people. And the sign of that is he's cleansing the temple of traitors, of those who've made this temple a house of trade. But there's another interpretation, and it's the disciples. How did the disciples interpret what Jesus done? Did you notice? Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, this is actually a quotation from Psalm 69, which is one of the key messianic psalms. Uh, In fact, New Testament writers will use Psalm 69 over and again, and especially the gospel writers, uh, when they get to Holy Week, to interpret what Jesus was doing there all the way to the cross. And so John quotes from this messianic psalm in relationship to what Jesus was doing. But he 
he does something else. He's quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And that Greek translation of the Old Testament for Psalm 69 verse 9 actually has it as John quotes it here. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a future tense. It's something in the future. But if you were to look at your Bibles uh, at some point today and look back at Psalm 69 verse 9, the ESV actually translates the Hebrew properly. It says, zeal for your house has consumed me. So why do the disciples and why does the Apostle John, in remembering this, take that which was in the past in the Hebrew Bible Why does he follow the Septuagint and make it a future tense? Zeal for your house will consume me as something they would remember. Well, I think there's a little bit of a further clue in that that word for consume can also be translated destroy. Zeal or love or passion for God's house and ultimately for God himself will destroy me. More on that in a minute. But for right now, we can say this. The disciples, as part of their interpretation, they're interpreting this Old Testament scripture, this psalm, that describes the work of the Messiah this way, that the Messiah would come, and out of passion for God and God's house, he would have such a passion for God that it would ultimately destroy him, ultimately consume him. When the Jews come, though, and they want some measure of confirmation from Jesus about what he's doing, they miss the point completely. They see what's happened, that Jesus has driven the the traitors away, but they don't recognize that what Jesus has done is actually itself the sign. Instead, what do they say? Do you see it? Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They've completely missed the point. What Jesus was doing was the sign. Instead, they asked for a further sign. Now, the the Jews are going to do this over and again, we're going to see in John's gospel. Over and over again, they miss the point. They see, but they don't really understand. There's a case of mistaken identity, and so they keep asking Jesus for yet another sign. Here, they're particularly concerned, I think, about the traitors. They completely miss the fact that Jesus said, this was my father's house. Now, why did you drive the traitors away? Why are they so concerned about the traitors? Well, maybe because it interrupted the business necessary for Passover to come off. Maybe it's because they were getting a kickback. Every sheep sold, every bull sold, we get a portion. Every, every Roman coin exchange, we get a percentage. Perhaps that was going on. But whatever the reason, their request for a sign demonstrates they see, but they can't see. They think they understand, but they don't understand. They think they know who Jesus is, but they really don't. What's striking, though, is Jesus doesn't rebuke them, does he? No, he actually gives them a sign. He he says to them in verse 19, This is the sign that demonstrates my authority. This is the sign that demonstrates my person and work. What does he say, verse 19? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. Now that's enigmatic, isn't it? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Surely the Jews thought it was was enigmatic. You can tell that by, by their response. But before we notice their response, we need to think about what Jesus is saying. 
that language, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, it actually has a conditional implied in it. In other words, we, we need to read that as, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. Or even better, as a conditional of time, when you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. But notice Jesus uses that word destroy. What did we just say about Psalm 69? What was it that the disciples remembered? Zeal for God's house, for your father's house, and ultimately love for your God will destroy you when you destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. I think it's pretty clear that John has positioned these statements to give us a clue about what Jesus is getting at here. Of course, the way the Jews respond demonstrates they don't get it, right? They respond quite literally, quite woodenly, and we can't blame them. They're standing in the temple. When Jesus says, destroy this temple, if you destroy this temple, when you destroy this temple, I will raise it up. They're looking around at all the stones of this uncompleted temple that had been begun to be refurbished under Herod's reign. It wouldn't be completed until AD 64, six years before it's destroyed. And they're saying, it's taken us 46 years to get this point. Are you going to somehow rebuild that which has taken us 46 years and three days? Here's the disciples who help us here. They, they remember and interpret what Jesus said, but they only remember and interpret what Jesus actually said and meant after the resurrection, which I think goes to show that even the disciples didn't get what Jesus was getting at here, right? But the disciples do figure it out, and you see it in verses 21 and 22. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, and the word that Jesus had spoken. After the resurrection, after the crucifixion, after the sign had been fulfilled, after Jesus' glory had been manifest, then the disciples realized, then they understood that love for God's house and ultimately love for God did in fact lead the Jews to destroy Jesus zeal for his father's house, in fact, consumed him. Where? On Golgotha's hill. There on the cross, after the Jews themselves had cried out, crucify him, crucify him, Jesus was destroyed. Jesus was crucified. And yet, though they destroyed him, when you destroyed this temple, the temple of his body, they put him in the grave, they left him there three days, but what happened then? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose bodily. Jesus rose literally. He rose physically. Which means what? His body is in fact the new temple. Jesus is in fact God in human form. We don't go to a place in order to know God. We go to a person. We go to Jesus. We go to him as the crucified and resurrected one. To see Jesus and to know Jesus, to worship Jesus, is to worship the true and living God. Because we are, we're worshiping in the right place when we worship Jesus. Because we're worshiping the right person. He's the sacrifice. He's the blood that's brought into a temple not made with hands in the heavenly places where his blood offered once for all cleanses you from all your guilty sins as you heard in the assurance of pardon. 
He's the ones for all sacrifice that ensures that in the day to come, there will be a resurrection of the dead and you'll participate in it. There is life in the world to come and you will know it. It's because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. Because zeal for his father's house destroyed him. But though they destroyed him in three days, he was raised from the dead. It's because that is true and real. You might have hope this morning. I mean, the real question here isn't simply, why didn't the Jews get it? Or why did it take the disciples until after the resurrection to understand? No, the, the real question is, will you begin to put your trust in Jesus? Because what John has been doing in, in passage after passage has been trying to lead you by the hand to put your faith and your reliance not just once for all, but over and again in this Jesus who has shown to you in so many signs. You see, the question is whether you're going to see him, but also recognize him. Recognize him not simply as an add-on to your life, but as your Savior and as your Lord, as the Messiah and as the Son of God. Friends, we often talk about our concerns. I'm concerned about this, or I'm concerned about that. Well, the, here's the concerning thing for me as a pastor. The concerning thing for me is that you come to a place where week by week, hear from this pulpit in your Sunday school classes, in your small groups, in your Bible studies, week after week, you are pointed to Jesus Christ. Week after week, you, you are urged to rely upon him. And when the sun is shining and the winds are fair and the skies are blue, it's easy to believe the signs. It's easy to believe in his name. But the concerning thing for me as a pastor is when the, when the storm comes and the skies cloud over and you know adversity and affliction and difficulty, will you still believe what you claim to believe? Will you still follow Jesus when the road is hard and you're climbing the hill called difficulty and you wonder, is Jesus real? Will you still follow him then? Friends, I have every reason to be concerned because of their response. This chapter ends with the response of others who heard Jesus and saw the signs. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. You see it right there. Uh, they, they, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. How can I say that it would be possible to not believe in Jesus? Well, two reasons. I mean, John himself here tells us that Jesus is pretty critical of the faith, of the professions of those who believed in his name. John tells us that Jesus doesn't, on his part, didn't entrust himself to them didn't trust what they were saying. He knew what was in man's. He, he could examine their hearts. In other words, while they believed, they believed in the signs, not in Jesus. Their trust was shallow. It was only for the good things that Jesus was doing, the good word that he was proclaiming. Perhaps it connected in some way with their deeper desires, but they didn't want a savior or a Lord. They wanted someone to provide for them what they wanted and what they thought they needed. Friends, all too often, that's exactly how we respond. 
We respond. We believe for the good gifts that God gives. We follow after Jesus when, when things are the way we want them to be. But when difficulty comes and when adversity strikes, then it's hard. Then we begin to wonder, have we been on a fool's errand? Then some of us stop following after. Now we, we still have a profession, we still claim to believe, but our lives very much show that we aren't believing what we say. It's a case of mistaken identity. We see, but we don't believe. We see, but we don't rightly identify, because if we truly believe that this is who Jesus is, we won't stop following. We won't stop believing. But there's a second reason why I think that this is, this is shallow. It's what John's going to say later in this gospel. When you get to John chapter 6, Jesus himself will say to these followers, there are some of you who do not believe. And then in John chapter 6, verse 66, John tells us, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When things got tough and adversity and affliction struck and hard words from God came, hard words from God's own word were brought to them, they stopped following. That was their response. What's ours? Friends, one of my great fears for my own heart is that that could be me. One of my favorite books, you've heard me mention it, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. There's a character that Bunyan speaks of there called Talkative. I have to confess, I see myself all too often in Talkative as someone who can talk about theology and talk about spiritual things and talk about this or talk about that. Talk about your pleasure. And yet the great danger of talkative was there was no reality. He looked fine on the outside, but as, as Christian describes him, inside he is hollow. When he's with others, he's one way. When he's at home, he's another. That's, that's, what, that's what these folks were. That's what can be us. So I ask you this morning... Do you, do you see who Jesus is as the crucified and resurrected one? Have you, are you resting your heart in him? Some of you are going through a difficult passage. It's a dark valley. Are you running to him? Are you trusting in him? When everything else is being stripped away, are you going to Jesus with your sorrow and your sadness and your burdens? Are you running elsewhere to self-medicate those issues, to try to drive away that sadness and sorrow? Are you still following after? Or are you walking away? Will you anchor your hopes in Jesus? Or is it simply a case of mistaken identity? Where you see him, but you haven't quite identified him rightly. As not simply something to add on to your life, but as Savior and Lord, as Messiah and Son of God, who demands your trust in your allegiance, how will you respond? Please pray with me. Father, we do ask that you would penetrate into those places that we can't go, I can't go, but you can. You know what's in man. You know our hearts. You know if we're real or not. And so, Lord, please, may we be those who belong to Zion, not just the place but indeed, within your very presence, uh, may we be those of whom glorious things are spoken. Uh, but Lord, we do ask that you would, you would challenge our hearts this morning. 
You would challenge us where we live. Don't let us go without some kind of decision about what we've heard, some kind of response. Lord, please do your work in our lives, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Let's turn together to number 345, this wonderful setting of Psalm 48.